This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the iconic soundtrack from Rocky that premiered on this day in history in 1976. Not only is the Rocky film a classic American underdog story, but the making of the movie itself and the story of the then-unknown actor named Sylvester Stallone. Well, it's a movie almost all by itself. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go and study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. And there are tens of hours in there for homeschoolers or for lifetime learners or for anyone in between. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now on to the story of Rocky. It was the longest of long shots, a low-budget boxing movie with a no-name star, Sylvester Stallone. Stallone was also the screenwriter, a task that he completed in just three days on the pages of a spiral notebook. Against all odds, it became a smash hit and spawned a seven-part film franchise that won three Oscars and pulled in over a billion dollars worldwide. And that's old dollars, not today dollars. And by the way, Creed, if you haven't seen it, and it's been out a while on released on Netflix and wherever, check it out. It's just so good. Maybe the best acting performance of Stallone's career. Rocky is more than a hero. He's an American icon, a symbol of heart, determination, dignity, hope, a no-luck palooka who inspired millions around the globe. But Rocky, the movie, was never a sure thing. Behind the scenes, the making of Rocky is as fascinating a story as the movie itself. The year, again, 1976. The Ramones were playing their first gig. Two friends formed a tiny computer company they called Apple, and a washed-up boxer was about to get his million-to-one shot. To tell this story, we are going to go directly to Sylvester Stallone, to the horse's mouth, the Italian stallion. Stallone was the product of a broken home, in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood of New York City. He was a juvenile delinquent that got kicked out of a series of schools before turning 15. He attended high school in Philadelphia and studied drama at the University of Miami. He moved back to New York, got an apartment, and decided to try his hand at acting. But as any actor will tell you, the one commodity they all have an abundance of is spare time. Here's how Stallone spent that time. And I'd go out with my big pen and, and legal pad and just start writing these, these stories. And, and most of them were, were, were very, very trivial. But there was something about the process of unrealized dreams. I was always brought back to this subject because I think it's one of the most enduring subjects and one of the most difficult passages for people to accept that they never were realized in their own lifetime, that they just didn't get that shot. You know, I've been coming in for six years, and six years you've been sticking it to me. I want to know how come. You don't want to know. Yeah, I want to know how come. You want to know. I want to know how. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Because you had the talent to become a good fighter. And instead of that, you became a leg breaker. So I'm cheap, second-rate loan shark. So living? It's a waste of life. The more I thought about this kind of street-like character that 
that just is totally misrepresented by the way he looks physically. Just the way he walks down the street was enough to, to say people, oh, dismiss him. He kind of looks like a bully or looks like a dark kind of character. And I thought, you know, that's an interesting character because they're always unrealized. Yep. And the wannabe actor left New York for Hollywood. He had scored a few small roles, but things were looking bleak. His wife was pregnant. His car was broken down. He had just $106 in the bank. In fact, Stallone had to sell his dog Butkus in order to make ends meet. Then one night, Stallone saw a fight between Muhammad Ali and a local brawler named the Bayonne Bleeder, a 30-to-1 underdog. And what I saw was pretty extraordinary. I saw a man they called the Bayonne Bleeder who didn't have a chance at all against, you know, the greatest fighting machine, supposedly, that ever lived. Back, slips a punch to his left. Oh, a vicious shot to the rim of Muhammad Ali, and what a surprise! And for one brief moment, this supposed stumble bum turned out to be magnificent in the fact that he lasted and knocked the champion down. I said, boy, if this isn't a metaphor for life, his entire life crystallized at that moment. He will be remembered for all eternity, at least uh, uh, among the fight fans. He did something extraordinary. I said, now that, that is probably what I need as a catalyst an idea a man who's going to stand up to life and take one shot and maybe go the distance and by the way the bayonne bleeder was chuck wepner and that bayonne is bayonne new jersey not far from where i grew up full of inspiration stallone would scratch out a screenplay by hand in again a mere three days so i started to write and it was one of those writing frenzies and three days later i came up with the script of rocky now the script by no means was a finished piece of material. It was probably about 90 pages, and maybe 10% of it remained in the final script, but it was done. Originally in Rocky, the character was very dark. As a matter of fact, uh, he throws the fight at, at the very end, and Mickey himself turns out to be this very angry, racist man. And, and uh, the reason, actually, Rocky throws the fight because he didn't want to be involved in this kind of world. He just he said, you know, I'd rather be who I was, and to just have all this hatred around me and so on. I remember showing it to my wife. She goes, oh, I don't like it. Rocky seems so nasty, so this, so that. Because I had made him very, very street-like and, and, and unrepentant. You know, he didn't have the kind of uh, attitude that eventually he ended up with. So I went back and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. And in the end, that's what all writers have to do. And that's go back and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And his wife did him a great service telling him she didn't like it. So when you're, when you're working on stuff and loved ones tell you it's not there yet, don't get mad at him. Thank him. And I'm sure, by the way, that he didn't want to hear that right then from his bride. But one thing you're going to get always from a wife who loves you is the truth. When we come back, more on this remarkable story on this day in history. Rocky premiered in 1976.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with our This Day in History series, always brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. And this one is, of course, Rocky. And on This Day in History, Rocky premiered in 1976. And we left off with Stallone talking about scratching out his screenplay by hand. Then while out on one of his acting auditions, Stallone got a big break, not in acting, but in writing. I first met uh, Bob Shardoff and Erwin Winkler, and I believe I was there on, on a, a, a casting call. So we're talking a little bit, and I guess I really wasn't right for the acting part. And on the way out, I said, oh, I don't know if it matters, but I do a little bit of writing. He goes, really? I said, yeah, I'm writing this, this story. This, uh, I have this thing about wrestlers, and I might do something about boxing. Well, he says, well, bring it around. And I thought, if I hadn't stopped on the way out, <laughs> that's why I tell all actors or writers, don't give up. Keep talking. Eventually, you might hit a nerve somewhere, and they go, ah. Come on back. And if they didn't say, come on back or bring it later and let's see what you've developed, I wouldn't be sitting here. So I have to give incredible credit to their, uh, to their insight and their patience. And they're willing to take a chance, which um, it doesn't exist much anymore, unfortunately. And it is unfortunate. Well, they read Stallone's script, but little do these producers know that the lead role had already been cast. Originally, when I brought the script to them, they were fairly enthusiastic about it. The one thing they were not enthusiastic about was me playing the part, and and I really can't blame them. At the time, Ryan O'Neill was a a candidate, Burt Reynolds, Robert Redford, Jimmy Kahn, and they all were were at the top of their game. So I could see it, but there was something inside of me that, that... you know, this opportunity is never going to come around. And I really wasn't used to money, and I had no idea of what I would be missing. But the temptation started to come forward. First, it was uh, twenty-five grand, then a hundred thousand dollars. I never heard of a hundred thousand because I had like a hundred six dollars in the bank, and like I said, I had to sell my dog and. Things were not looking very, very good. Uh, my forty-dollar car had just blown up, so I was taking a bus to work, and but still. It, it didn't matter. I wanted to stick with it. Then it went up to 150000 175000 It went up to 250000 Now my head was starting to spin. And it went up to 330000 And probably, I heard, it went up to 360000 And I thought, all right, you know, you've really managed poverty very well. You've got this down to a science. You really don't need much to live on. I had, I had like, sort of figured it out. So I was not... Um, in, in any way uh, used to, uh, to the good life. So I thought, you know what? If I, I know in the back of my mind, if I sell this script and it does very, very well, I'm going to jump off a building. And if I'm not in it, there's no doubt about it. I'm going to leap in front of a train. I'm going to be very, very upset. So this is one of those things where you just roll the dice and you fly by the proverbial seat of your pants. Say, all right, I got to try it. I got to just do it. I may be totally wrong, and I'm going to be taking a lot of people down with me, but I just believe in it. Stallone trained six hours a day for five months to don Rocky's boxing gloves, popping vitamins and hitting the gym to develop his 46-inch chest and 16-inch biceps. Then on January 9, 1976, Sly Stone began filming Rocky. It was the first feature-length movie to employ the Steadicam, 
which was used primarily in the fight scenes and the scenes of Rocky running in Philadelphia during his training. Shot in just 28 days on a measly $950,000 budget, the film left literal marks on the actor-screenwriter. We didn't have really the, the money to shoot a normal Union film at that time in Philadelphia, so we would travel in a van. I would jump out of the van, and uh, we were working with the handheld camera at the time with, with Garrett Brown, and it was uh, somewhat experimental. And he'd film me running through shopping malls and up down the steps and flights, uh, I mean, curved corridors along the river until finally my legs basically gave out and I'm like writhing on the ground and I want to rise up and say, John, I'm dying here. And he goes, no, no, use it. Use the pain. I said, for what? I mean, I'm in misery. He goes, well, no, no. You know, it's giving your character, it's giving him some depth. I said, it's giving me bruises. It's giving me, like, agony. I can't sleep at night. But, you know, John would use... One thing about John, he would use the environment. If he saw, like, the scene where we just jumped down and saw this ship along the dock, this uh, uh, docked along the pier, and he said, just jump out, run as fast as you can along the ship. And, and, and I'm running and running. I said, you know what? My legs are buckling. I'm, I'm literally going to crash down here. Teeth are going to go, jaw face i'm just going to be ground down to this flat-faced image please and, and i just barely made it as john had had me he would have me run and run and jump park benches and down streets and people are throwing things at me like when i had the orange thrown at me and i'm these people had no idea who i was i was just some strange alien invader in a well-worn tattered baggy incredibly <laughs> ugly sweatsuit running through their neighborhood you know and they're like throwing things at me and we kind of like made it work but actually was like i thought they were trying to hit me with the orange and when it came to casting the reigning world heavyweight champion apollo creed stallone wanted a real boxer ken norton auditioned but he was too big when joe frazier showed up for the role he gave stallone four stitches in the first 11 seconds during a light sparring session the search continued a hollywood cattle call was announced when a former NFL linebacker named Carl Weathers showed up to audition around 10 o'clock at night. He walks in, and he starts to audition, and he's doing the lines well, and then he gets up, and he starts to box with me a little bit, and he, and he bangs two or three off my head. I said, geez, this guy has... He really doesn't care if he gets the part, does he? I mean, he's like he's putting lumps on my forehead, and he's really into it. Then he sits back down. He goes, uh, Mr. Allison, I could do much better if you had a real actor reading with me. He goes, well, Carl, that's Rocky. That's the guy who wrote the script. He goes, oh, maybe he'll get better. <laughs> said, you know what? I said, please, hire him. Uh, he's great. He's good. That's exactly the attitude I wanted. He was fantastic, and he still is. And by the way, how many men would have said that if they wrote it and wanted to start it? Would have taken that insult. But Sylvester Stallone knew what he wanted, and he knew the attitude and the cockiness he needed. And that's about as cocky as you get. Maybe he'll get better. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And Rocky, well... We're going to get to more of the uh, more of the backstory, but this particular part is what hits us the most. And a lot of people say it's a boxing movie, but it's as much of a boxing movie as Gone with the Wind is a movie about the Civil War. In the end, Rocky's a story about us. It's a story about America. Boxing's just the backdrop. 
It's a tale of two misfits, Rocky and Adrian, who find strength in each other. They originally considered Susan Sarandon, Cher, and Bette Midler for her part. Here's Stallone on casting Rocky's love interest, Adrian, played by Francis Ford Coppola's sister, Talia Shire. Talia Shire was also um, a last-minute choice because we, we just couldn't find the right person. And then she came in, and it was, I think, the same night as Carl Weathers. A very, very... I, I think it was. And she came in, and we just read, and I felt the earth move. I, I really felt a tremendous vitality and kinship. I mean, I loved her. I really, really loved her. I just loved the way she looked and the way she... she her hair fell in, in this timid, fragile creature. I said, just incredible, and the perfect voice. So when we were going to do... Uh, Rocky meets her, and he, he, he just talks to her, and, and, and he sees a beauty in her that no one else sees because everyone has something to do. Rocky really has nothing to do. So he moves at a much slower pace, and he observes, and he sees things that other people don't see. So he's trying to bring her out because I guess he feels that she's probably the only one who's worse off than he is. So he's feeling kind of like a little protective towards her. And... The sequence where we're supposed to go ice skating, originally that was written for 300 extras, and it was a big deal. Well, I show up on the set, they said, we have a slight change in plans. And when we come back, we're going to hear what those change of plans, what they entailed. We're talking about Rocky, and on this day in history, production began on this iconic movie from the most unlikely of people, this out-of-work, well, never-before-published screenwriter who, well, not much money was spent on the budget. We learned it was low budget. We learned there were unorthodox ways of filming it because there wasn't much of a budget. And look what we get. And he says no, by the way, to all the big stars in the casting call for the women and goes with an unlikely Talia Shire. When we come back, more on the story of Rocky this is Our American Stories, our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by Hillsdale College. American stories, and we continue with Sylvester Stallone's story, and we love when we can to bring it right again from the horse's mouth. Nobody else here, nobody's opinions. We're hearing from Sylvester Stallone himself about the remarkable story of how Rocky got made, how it got cast, some of the innovations, including that steady cam. So much of this movie could not have been shot. So many of the scenes could not have happened without this camera that sat on someone's shoulders and they just sort of followed Rocky around. That meat locker scene where Rocky's punching out the meat, that just couldn't have happened without the Steadicam. Not on that budget. And again, they had a budget of $950,000. And when we left off, Talia Shire was, well, of course, Rocky's pick. And by the way, some of the other actresses in contention were Cher and Bette Midler and Susan Sarandon, but Stallone... Well, there was just something about Talia Shire. Let's pick up where he left off. 
we have one extra. I said, interesting. And um, I said, well, I have a, an interesting thing uh, to tell you, too. I don't ice skate. I don't know why I wrote it, but I thought it'd be interesting. So here we are with an empty arena, and uh, I don't really skate at all. So I decided I was going to run on ice, and she really, she says she skates, but if you watch her, her ankles are falling in, and she's barely holding on, and Rocky's trying to explain his life, looking cool, and he looks like so foolish, but she doesn't care. And where they really come together at that moment when he goes, you know, my father said I wasn't born with much of a brain. He goes... Uh, my mother, my mother, she says sort of the same thing. She says, you weren't born with much of a body, so you better start developing your brain. It's like, oh, these two people are two halves that absolutely need to fit together. You know, they are really on the same page. Then he walks her home. I think we make a real sharp couple of coconuts. I'm dumb with your shot. What do you think? And I'm starting to, like, realize that this is the key to the film. This is the heartbeat. The whole, The whole movie is going to be based on the discovery of these two people, the love. She goes upstairs, and now she's, like, terrified because this is not exactly what you call a swinging bachelor apartment. And the moment when he when he gets her to that that door, all of a sudden the, the whole facade changes. He no longer looks like this terrifying guy. He goes, you know, would you take off your glasses? And she really looks... If you ever watch that scene closely, you'll never see better responding by an actress to an awakening inside of like really feeling like someone truly loves her that it's like she's dying she's never felt this before and coming from this man who is you know this physical kind of specimen the last kind of guy she ever imagined herself being with it, it just I mean I, I disappear in that scene she is just off the chart you want to kiss me back if you don't want. I don't want to kiss you. Meanwhile, Stallone and the producers knew just whom they wanted to cast as Mickey, the trainer. I had written it for Lee J. Cobb, who I thought was brilliant and on the waterfront, and he had the part. And then the director goes, okay, uh, let's turn to page 16 and read. He goes, excuse me. I had Lee J. Cobb come in for the Mickey role and asked him to read, and he became very indignant that he didn't read. He goes, I've done about 60 movies. John said, you, know, you buy a Rolls Royce, you still want to drive it around the block. Because <laughs> the last time I read was for a radio show in 1936. So if you wanted this jockey, you should hire one. I don't read. He looked at Sly, and he said, if I could write like you, I never would have been an actor. Then he walked out. Even though I lost a great Lee J. Cobb, Lee Strasberg, Lou Ayers, and all these great characters, Broderick Crawford, but then in walked Burgess and Pingo. He had no problem with uh, auditioning. He came in and we read the scene where Rocky's thrown out of his locker and he comes and complains to Mickey. First time we meet Mickey. Came to the end of that scene and as Rocky turns to walk away, Burgess says, hey, Rock. Well, that's not in the script. Sylvester said, yeah. He said, hey, you ever thought about retiring? And, and Sylvester said, no. You think about it. I said, great. That's perfect. You got the part. That's just what he would say. And then there's that music that has become as well known as the movie itself. A minuscule 25000 all-in music budget meant several established composers passed on the project. 
Here's Bill Conti, the music composer for Rocky. So I did about a minute. I had dun da 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 and a da 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 in a faster kind of way. I said, you got to make it a little bit longer. He says, man, I need another 30 seconds. I shot about five miles of slide doing one-on push-ups and medicine balls. Can I have another 30 seconds? So it kept growing and growing. By the end, of course, it ended up being what it is. It sounded great. I said, you know, you ought to put some lyrics to this thing. This sounds like a song. We had lyricists on the project, and John says, well, can't we say something? I says, well, we've hired two lyricists. You can say anything you want. So we go, okay, and that's how Gonna Fly Now came to be. And imagine that. Again, one of the most iconic music soundtracks of all time, done for a shoestring budget of $25,000. If you ever get a chance and you're a movie fan, um, by the way, see and read Truffaut and Hitchcock. It's the great Francois Truffaut interviewing Hitchcock. And then there's an HBO film about those interviews that you can't stop watching. But there's a book by Bernard, about Bernard Herrmann, and that is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's composer for all of his movies. And I, I don't think many people think there were many better soundtracks than Hitchcock movies. And the, bo- the best one, the most iconic one, sprung from no budget. It turns out Psycho was made, and Alfred Hitchcock tested it, and it tested terribly. So he wasn't going to have it be a movie. He was going to stick it into Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Bernard Herrmann saw it said, hey, let me play with that. And generally, he had full orchestras. But in this particular instance, he just took four violins. And that famous shower scene came about because Bernard Herrmann thought he could add something to the, to the subtext of this great movie. And to this day, that is one of the most iconic sound sequences in the history of movies, right along with that, that sharp and simple uh, violin and string sequence in Jaws. And again, Bernard Herrmann talking about his ability to adapt with no money and do great things. And again, as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And by the way, Hillsdale now has a dozen courses up online, and if you can't get to Hillsdale, well, they can get to you. And it's everything from the Constitution, Constitution 101, straight to their magnificent, magnificent uh, 10-part course on C.S. Lewis. And you want to talk about a storyteller from the Chronicles of Narnia, straight through to, well, screw tape letters, and mere Christianity may be the greatest piece of basic theology ever written that anybody could access and understand. Again, that's Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu. And when we come back, we're going to close out our hour on Rocky. And again, what an unlikely story. My favorite part so far is that this guy somehow managed to hold out on a $360,000 advance when he didn't have two nickels to rub against one another. And also that he had the audacity walking out of that audition to talk to two of the biggest producers in the world and tell them he had a script like they'd care. And by the way, that those two guys listened and didn't say, get the heck out of here, kid, because that's the other side of that story. Those guys could have said, you're a bum. Get out of here. Who asked you? And you can imagine all the other pejoratives that could have come their way. But Erwin Winkler knew better. And my goodness, what a decision he made. And when we come back, more on the Rocky story. On this day in history, in 1976, the movie premiered. Let's listen to Bill Conti's soundtrack as we go out. You've heard it a million times, but now you know it was made for next to nothing. 
This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. Our American Stories and our final segment in this hour-long celebration of Rocky on this day in 1976. It premiered in America. And where we left off in this pretty amazing story, that iconic ending where Rocky embraces Adrian in the ring was not originally written that way. The original ending of Rocky was uh, quite different than what we have now. The original ending was he, he goes the distance, and he's looking for Adrian. The crowd is starting to disperse. You know, one minute after the fight, yes, he, he did a noble thing, but time moves on. The, the champion is carried out of the ring, and Rocky starts to meander through the crowd. He eventually gets to the curtain. He pulls back the curtain at the back of the arena and sees Adrian, and she gives him a, a slight hug, and he picks up this small pennant like a flag and hand in hand they start to walk back to the rock locker room there's no one talking to him anymore there's just trash strewn everywhere and they just see these two solitary figures moving off into the distance off into like you know being anonymous forevermore but they just had that moment and and the, all he could think about was how much he loved her and just getting back to his life again the real life and it just didn't seem very very satisfying so after we had done that and that was the poster shot we thought boy wouldn't it be interesting to catch a man's moment a man's life at the quintessential seminal moment so we went back and i have friends in the scene i have producers in the scene we had about 30 people we only had the money to do like one quarter of the ring so just a little corner and you see these people going around in a circle milling around and in crowds and rocky's going oh I, you know just get everything out of my face and he's yelling for adrian rocky adrian rocky and they had someone as as adrian is running to the ring again very very tight they had uh, like fishing line connected to her hat and they pull her hat off so because I thought wouldn't it be interesting that the first thing Rocky says when she comes into the ring is like where's your hat I mean he's so into her into like the way she looks and that he doesn't care that his eyes are swollen shut his hands are smashed and that he's done the greatest thing in his life he doesn't say look at me he goes where's your hat and he's like I love you you know I love you too yeah, I mean, the visual's working, the sound is working, the body movements are all coming together at this absolute peak. And right there, when I embrace her, 
uh, I was sitting with John Amelson, and he, we froze right on the single frame when he is looking elated, and he has her in his arms, and it's just this look of ecstasy. And the next frame, it went like, uh, it just deflated. I said, there it is. From that moment on, it's all downhill. I mean, how we all hit this absolute maximum of elation and celebration, and you know that can only be sustained for like oh, just an infinitesimal moment in time. And if you can just can you imagine how how great it would be just to freeze on that moment. And that's how we froze Rocky. That the original Rocky, he went out at the height. His, his, his life will never be more rewarding or more important or more valid than that second. And it's, it was a very, very difficult thing to do. I've been trying to do it in films ever since. To bring all those three elements together at the exact instant is, um, it, it was like a minor miracle. And indeed it was. And so we've learned all about how this unlikely film came to be. It's finished. It's wrapped up. But, you know, you never know what you have. And before a film goes to full theatrical release, well, it gets shown around to people and to influencers. And back then, well, the Directors Guild of America is where this film got shown in some of the initial showings. And you can imagine how nervous Sylvester Stallone is. I mean, he's passed up real opportunities. If he blows this movie, by the way, it's on him. He can't blame someone else for messing it up. And by the way, the Directors Guild is an entertainment guild representing all the directors in cinema, television, and radio. Then finally, it was being shown at the Directors Guild, and this was going to be the test. And there was about 900 people invited, and it was a packed crowd, and the movie was playing terribly. My mother was sitting next to me, and the laughs weren't coming where they were supposed to, and the fight itself seemed to be listless the response was and i sat there as everyone filed out of the theater and i couldn't believe it i said ma i really blew it it was all like i don't know it was, it was nice while it lasted but i guess when you get down and you show it to the big boys they're just not buying it anyway i sat there and literally there was no one left in the theater because i didn't want i was humiliated and saddened by the whole thing and even you know i walked her out and I was walking down the steps, and there's three flights down, first flight, second flight, and then by the time I turned for the third flight, the entire audience was down there. There was 900 people waiting, and they started to applaud, and I mean truly applaud. And I said, how could you doubt me, Mom? I'm shocked. <laughs> and it's like, I really, I just completely came apart. And there's, there's, so there'll never be a moment like that ever. I mean, I truly was over. I said, this is it. I'm just going to, you know, go back home, take my dog, and go back into, you know, trying to eat out a living. And they were all there. And they responded in a way. It's like, I don't know if that's the way they did things in Hollywood, but they saved it up and I'll never get over that moment. I just looked at all these people and they were applauding. And it's been all downhill since. <laughs> <laughs> and he remembers that like it happened to him yesterday. And then the question becomes this, why does Rocky resonate with so many people? Rocky never expected to win, never. He knew it. 
he was that much of a realist. And I, I like, admired the character for that because so often I had gone to uh, fight films and or sporting films. Yes, we're going to go out there, we're going to knock him out, you're going to win. I said, no, because I'm not going to win. I'm going to get destroyed. But if I can just be lucid, if I can still be standing on my feet, you know what? Then life isn't so bad. And I think, again, symbolically, at the very end of our lives, if we can still say, you know, I lived life with integrity and I took all the blows, as the song says, and I'm, I still prevailed, I think that's a, that's a, a good epitaph for anyone. And that's what I tried to capture in this film. And again, if you get the chance to see Creed, if you've seen the others and you haven't seen Creed yet because you're thinking, why do I want to watch a movie where... Uh, Rocky Balboa is now a washed-up restaurant owner. I mean, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm promising you, you won't be disappointed. It may be the best Rocky movie. And that's hard for me to say because the first one's so good and Rocky Two is so good. This is a case where the remakes were really great and people would actually argue about which remake was the best. Four. Four, says Hengler. Hengler says four. And well, may, one and two are great, but Creed is just, it kills me. And at the 1977 Academy Awards... Rocky was nominated in no fewer than 10 categories. Not bad for a debut, huh? Including just these minor things like best actor, best original screenplay, and he ended up winning they ended up winning 3 Oscars this movie. Best director, best picture, and best film editing. And those are 3 by the way, heavyweight awards for the Academy. And so we're going to leave this segment with these parting words from the champ. Let's take a listen. It almost seems like, like a dream state. And quite often people said, or people will say, God, that must have been incredible. I said, yeah, but I was never there. And now when I sit back and I reflect on it, how, what a, an incredible miracle. Every day I truly miss that character so much I tell you sometimes I could just cry because I'll never have a voice like that again where I can just speak whatever I feel in my heart um, that's the one thing I'll always cherish about that character because if I say it you won't believe it but when Rocky said it it was the truth yep and a great writer William Faulkner once said all autobiography is fiction and all fiction is autobiography. And I don't think there's been better and truer words spoken about writing and the written word. And we've got to thank Sylvester Stallone for that, for offering that up to the public. Uh, you can go on YouTube and catch so much good stuff about the making of Rocky. But we thought we'd bring you it from Stallone's mouth himself. And you could tell he stumbled on something. He just knew he stumbled on it. And it all goes back to watching that fight. Chuck Wepner, the Bayonne bleeder. Muhammad Ali just saying, hey, let's do it on a lark. Let's this, give this guy a shot. Nobody gave him a chance, and he put the champ down. I'll never forget that because I'm a Jersey kid rooting for this Jersey guy to just make it through a round. I mean, people thought he wouldn't survive a round. And Stallone had the sense to know what was going on there and frame a movie around that feeling, that thought, that idea, that character. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this, Greg. Our This Day in History 
segments always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to catch all of their great, great online courses on this day in history in 1976. Rocky Premier. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. We love telling you quirky stories from our history here on this show, and this one comes to you from Bill Bright, a friend from New Hampshire. It's a story of the best, worst counterfeiter. In American history. Emmerich Jutner, also known as Edward Mueller, who lived near Broadway and West 96th Street in Manhattan, eluded the counterfeiting laws from 1938 to 1948, longer than any other maker of the queer in American history. The first 63 years of Jutner's life were upright and respectable. Short, blue-eyed, white-haired, mustachioed, and blessed with a winning, if toothless, grin, Jutner had learned the rudiments of photo-engraving in his native Austria. After emigrating to America at 13, he worked as a building superintendent while tinkering with numerous unsuccessful inventions. With his children grown, the newly widowed Jutner retired in 1937 to the Upper West Side, where he lived with his mongrel terrier. He worked as a junk man, picking up discarded appliances and old tires from vacant lots with a pushcart. But he wasn't making enough to live on and soon found himself nearing destitution. So, using his ancient engraving skills, he photographed a dollar bill and recorded the images on sensitized zinc plates, which he then etched in an acid bath. With a little retouching and a small hand press, he was ready to make more money by, well, making more money. The U.S. Secret Service, which has chased counterfeiters since 1865, protecting presidents became part of their mission only in 1901, first noticed Jutner's activity when a phony $1 silver certificate turned up at a cigar store on Broadway near 102nd Street. Even as the agency opened a new case file numbered 880, agents felt everything about the bill was unusual. No one in recent times had considered singles worth the trouble to counterfeit. More importantly, the bill was obviously laughably bad. While U.S. currency was printed on 75% cotton and 25% linen stock with red and blue fibers of various lengths embedded in the paper, 
Jutner had used cheap bond paper from some corner store. The numbers were fuzzy. Many of the letters were misshaped or illegible. Washington's portrait was, as the Secret Service itself reported, poorly executed. Washington's right shoulder blends with the oval background. The left eye is represented by a black spot. The right eye is almond-shaped. But the bogus singles kept turning up. Those that could be traced had been passed to the subway and elevated lines, and newspaper vendors, bartenders, and other small businesses that handled hundreds, if not thousands, of $1 bills daily. Juttner carefully passed his fakes only at busy times, such as rush hour on the subway. A five-cent fare paid with a phony dollar yielded a 95-cent profit. And as the Secret Service later learned, Juttner never spent a stake in the same store twice and passed only one or two bills a day. By December 1939, file 880 contained some 600 counterfeits. The bills grew worse with time. While touching up the plates, Juttner misspelled the president's name as W-A-H-S-I-N-G-T-O-N. Washington. Nonetheless, he kept passing bogus singles throughout World War II despite successive Treasury publicity campaigns. Apparently, many of those who found themselves holding a Juttner counterfeit kept it as a souvenir instead of turning it over to the government. By 1947, the Secret Service held over 5,000 of Juttner's phony singles. Yet, despite what New Yorker writer S. St. Clair McKelway called a manhunt that exceeded in intensity and scope any other manhunt in the chronicles of counterfeiting, despite thousands of interviews and hundreds of thousands of flyers, the agency didn't have a clue to his identity. A few weeks before Christmas, 1947, Juttner's apartment caught fire. New York's bravest, in extinguishing the blaze, piled the old man's junk in an alley where a sudden snowstorm buried it. The homeless old man stayed in Queens with his daughter while his apartment was being repaired. On January 13, 1948, Several neighborhood youths noticed some 30 strange-looking $1 bills lying about the alley. Unlike countless businessmen who had accepted Juttner's signals, the kids instantly realized the bills were bogus. One of their parents took some to the West 100th Street Station House, where detectives identified them as counterfeit. The Secret Service quickly identified the tenant, whose singed furnishings had been dumped in the alley, and arrested Juttner when he returned to his apartment a few days later. Juttner had succeeded because he passed no more bogus singles than necessary for his survival, only knocking off a few bills whenever he needed food or help paying his $25 monthly rent. Blandly admitting everything, Juttner was sentenced to a year and a day and fined $1. He was released after four months to live with his daughter and her family. After McElway profiled him in The New Yorker, 20th Century Fox filmed Mr. 880, with Edmund Gwen, renowned as Chris Kringle in Miracle on 34th Street, in the title role. Juttner made more money from the film than he had as a counterfeiter. And great job on that, Robbie, and thanks to Bill Bryke, our friend from New Hampshire, for delivering this story. And my goodness... 
We're not recommending this as a possible retirement hobby, but my goodness, one dollar at a time, not 20s, not hundreds, dollar at a time. This man had, if anything, great discipline. And what a great story. And we love telling, well, sort of funny stories. I mean, our whole team was laughing at this one. It was quite amusing. Bill Breich, thanks so much again, our friend from New Hampshire. And Emmerich Juttner's story, the best worst counterfeiter in American history, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of a father from Austin, Texas, named Jeff Sandifer. Our two boys were transitioning from Montessori, where they had great freedom. Maria Montessori was an original pioneer who believed that children could do more than we ever imagined. And so she set up a system that was more real world, gave children freedom with limits and responsibility, and treated them more like special beings with great potential than wards of the state. It's very different than sitting in a classroom and having a teacher talk at you. Montessorians tend to be in the classroom doing something that matters. So they've been in that environment, but it's time to move them into traditional school. So I go to see the very best teacher at the very best school where our daughter went for middle school And I said, when should we transition the boys to traditional school? And he just snapped and said, once they've had the freedom like that, they won't like being chained to a desk for eight hours a day. And so without even thinking, I just reacted and I said, well, I don't blame them. And this is a very tall man. I won't out who he was, but you know, very well-respected. And he stood there for the longest time looking at the ground. He didn't say anything. And I thought, well, gosh, I've offended him. And then he looked up, and he had tears in his eyes. And he said very quietly, I don't blame them either. And he shook his head. And so I went home that day, and I told Laura, I know what kind of teacher he is. I got the message. We're either going to homeschool or we're going to start a school because our boys aren't going to traditional school. We're not going to do that. They're not going to be chained to a desk. So we started with seven young people in a small rented house, two of them being our children. And that was the start of Acton Academy. An academy guided by four principles. The questions that students will ask, who am I? What is it that I can do and what must I master? Because I want to be really good at something. Who will affirm me and hold me accountable? Got to have a community and people to hold me accountable. And then the third one, how do I prove what I can do? It could be a credential that has value, or it could be a project I've done, or it could be a portfolio, but I want to have proof. And so our four metaphors were, who am I? The hero's journey. The belief that every child is put on this earth to find a calling that will change the world. The hero's journey story, of course, is I think embedded deep inside our souls. It's a reason Star Wars works. It's a reason The Lion King works. It's that longing in human beings to go out and do something that matters. And then of course, while the heroes in search of the grail, the lesson always is, 
It's not whether they find the grail or not, it's how the hero changes in the process. So it's this idea of through challenge and struggle, we find out more about ourselves and our gifts. And in that struggle, along with fellow travelers and people you're walking with, you develop deep relationships and a community. And so I just think the hero's journey story is as old as time. And I think what makes our place unusual, if not unique, is everybody there believes every person there is going to change the world. When you talk about changing the world, people often uh, mistake it for saying, well, you have to be prime minister or president or the head of Google. And so we make it very clear early that you could be someone running uh, small dry cleaners with three employees and have a thousand people show up at your funeral because every day you treated customers, employees with respect and did things in the community and you absolutely changed the world in a profound way. The what skills do I need to learn and what do I need to master, that's the beauty of the internet and Khan Academy. If you haven't used it yet, Khan Academy is a pretty cool place that lives on the internet. It enables you to learn just about anything at your own pace and from the best people in their fields like Sal Khan for free. Almost 12 million people do just this monthly, including innovative schools like Acton Academy. We've never taught a minute of math or reading or writing or anything. No adult has ever taught anything in the Acton Studios, ever, ever. Now, Sal Khan has come in remotely, but no adult in authority, I should say, has ever taught. You go find your own answers. People can move on their own pace in certain things when you can. I can watch it 23 times if I have to. So it's putting someone like Sal Khan on demand repeatedly over and over again. That's better than Mr. Coonrod, rest his soul, who taught me algebra. Because I, I could only listen to him lecture once and we all had to be on the same page. He may not be the best teacher. And in fact, he may be the best teacher for you, but I don't like his voice. Well, okay, well then we'll go find someone. So there are lots of other great experts out there. They're terrific role models. And the other part is it, you having choices and having to take responsibility for your learning. If you'll do that, you can learn anything. And so this requires you to do that and you can't blame me for not teaching you well or not inspiring you. It doesn't become personal. The personal thing is you set your goals and you reach them. There's a famous kind of uh, story that this teacher stood up at one meeting and said, we've taught the children, we've taught the children, they just haven't learned anything, blaming the children. And then a voice from the back of the room said, how do you define the verb teach in that last sentence? And so people can learn things with no teacher. Now, do I want a role model? Do I want an expert? Absolutely, adults have a role, but you don't have to teach me in this world. I can learn. And someone can stand up and teach and pontificate and talk, and the people in the room learn nothing. So we really are centered around learning, learning driven by the people who are gonna become heroes. But the one thing we don't have is a lot of adult authority. Our students write beautifully. If you start out lecturing somebody about grammar, they will hate to write. If you just get them loving to write, you can clean up the grammar quickly. If you want to fix grammar, grammar's easy. And once you learn the rules, everybody breaks them anyway on purpose. I mean, Bill Buckley used to always you know, say, I'll put my commas anywhere I damn well want to. But they learn to write beautifully. The reason is they like to critique each other. So no adult grades anything at our school. The young people grade everything. We try to remove the adults from authority, or let's say from dictatorial authority, 
and put them in their proper role as maybe game makers. Because if I invite you to play tennis, we're going to agree to a set of rules. It's not anarchy. Uh, we're going to have decide what the trophy might look like, and we're going to engage in a tennis game. So we create games, invite people into play. So if I give you a challenge you think matters for your why, three or four or one recipe or process or series of steps, you can call it our algorithm, in order to how to make that happen, and let's throw in some squads of people to work with, that's a great way to learn. And at the end of it, you can actually do something. For example, right now we're doing a cooking and chemistry quest. We're learning deep lessons about chemistry. At the same time, they're learning how to cook. At the end of all that, there'll be a public exhibition, as there always is, and we'll recreate the TV show Chopped. Have you ever seen it? So when you have a certain number of ingredients a certain amount of time, the teams will be cooking things for the audience, but they'll have a limited time and money for ingredients. The only way they can earn more is by getting on stage, pulling a question out of the hat about chemistry, answering it correctly, and relating it to what they're cooking at the moment. So to be able to do that, you have to have very deep knowledge of chemistry, not memorize formulas. That would buy your team a little more time and a few more ingredients as you compete to learn how to cook. And so anyway, that whole idea of why am I here, and then what skills do I need to learn, cooking's probably a pretty important one, but then what am I gonna master? I mean, everyone's got a gift. What is your gift? Because great gifts, when you master them, bring opportunities to you. And so as you become better at something in a domain, as you have a deliberate practice where you work hard, whether it's karate or running or cooking to be good at something, great opportunities come to you. Now, that's all easy to say, it's hard to do. That's why you need people to hold you accountable, to affirm and celebrate you. And this is where, you know, traditional teachers and the great ones, you, you probably remember two teachers from your lifetime, or three or four that really mattered. If you think hard enough about it, it probably wasn't that they taught you algebra. Mr. Coonrod taught me algebra. He was a coach. Now, he was a decent algebra teacher, and I learned algebra, but what really mattered was Mr. Coonrod believed in me. He affirmed me. And so we remember great teachers because they affirm, but anyone can affirm you. They don't have to know algebra. They have to know you. And my goodness, not a lot of adult authority around that dictatorial adult authority and school centered around learning. Sign me up. I want a do-over on all of my public education because I was chained to the desk and I felt like it. And that was back in the 1970s. I can't imagine what young kids are feeling like today with all this technology. Well, I know I have a 14-year-old and she feels chained to a desk and she's bored out of her mind at least half the day, every day. And we've got good public schools. And I love the four questions that Jeff asked because I think they're just so important. Who am I? What is it I can do? And what must I master? By the way, that's where real self-esteem will come from. Mastery of something, being good at something. Three, who will hold me accountable? I don't think there's a lot of that happening many places with young people in this country. And last, how do I prove what I can do? And it's not how I feel, right? How do I prove what I can do? How can I measure it? When we come back, more with Jeff Sanifer's story, and by the way, his bride, Laura, and the story of Acton Academy here on Our American Stories.
we're back with our American stories and Jeff Sanifer's story of being unsatisfied with the current education system and he and his wife starting their own school called the Acton Academy. America became the strongest, most powerful, fairest country on the face of the earth before we ever had an organized school system. We had one-room schoolhouses where you learned basically character education, reading, writing, arithmetic. And in many ways, Acton is a return to the multi-age, one-room schoolhouse where you learn the basics in community. Then, back in those days, you would then take an apprenticeship. Now, interestingly, you also would often get seconded out before your apprenticeship age to another family down the street. And, and I don't, here's my guess as to why, it's because no one listens to their parents, but you will listen to your favorite uncle. And so people actually had contracts where you would send your kids to go live with another family. And of course, the towns and cities were small then. And they would send their kids to you for character education. And then you'd go to one-room schoolhouses. And then about age 13, you'd get an apprenticeship. You'd learn to master a skill underneath someone who affirmed you and held you accountable. And you learned to trade. Now, that made America. Because it wasn't until the late 1800s, we had any kind of organized school systems. Those were organized around the Prussian model, around basically a military model. They were encouraged by the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, not because they were evil robber barons, but because they worried about civil unrest from waves of immigrants coming in. Now, whether that was true or not, they should have been worried, or it was a fear of the other, we don't know. But you were having lots of people come that you wanted to have become factory workers and to have a civil society, and these school systems were a way to train them. Once you understand that the early school systems were to train factory workers, long rows of industrial lockers, bells ringing every 45 minutes, the command, listen to me, look up here, kind of rote memorization and routine, all makes sense. So it wasn't an evil, stupid system. It was a way to equip people for the jobs and lives that they were going to at least live at the turn of the 19th century when you had massive industrialization going on in the Industrial Revolution. Again, I'm not trying to cast aspersion on the Rockefellers, but if you're running a factory, you want people in those days particularly to do what you're asking them to do routinely over and over and over again. You don't have robots with AI to, to go pick things off of shelves or to make cars or to make what you're making. So they wanted people who would do what they wanted. So we could have a long discussion about that and whether it worked, but, but it doesn't make sense today. When you look out on the world, FedEx usually beats the post office. And I think in this case, there's people working very hard inside a bureaucratic institution, but Hayek had it right that you want to have as few bureaucracies as necessary reserved for those things that bureaucracy serve well. Like the legal system, the military, I mean, you probably need a bureaucracy for a lot of that. You don't want people paying for their own private or sergeant. But in most things, the market works better. Acton Academy students starting in middle school, one of the badges you have to earn to go to Launchpad. Badges is Acton's term for credentialing, and Launchpad is their term for high school. You don't have to earn the badge. You, you can choose whatever you want but you won't ever go to our launch pad without the apprenticeship badge. So you have to start at your first year of middle school doing apprenticeships. You choose the apprenticeship. You have to go get the apprenticeship. We don't bring people into you. You have to deliver on your promises and get a rating. So I can write an email that says, Alex, 
you're my hero because, and genuinely mean it, because you're the person I want to become, will you give me five minutes for a phone call to explain our apprenticeship program? Didn't ask you for a job, I asked you for five minutes. In the phone call, I'm only taking five minutes, I'm gonna explain how it works and ask if I can come see you in person. Then I'm gonna go in person and I'm gonna say, Alex, you've heard about the program. I've told you, I'm gonna promise you, I'm gonna show up early, I'm gonna work late, I'm gonna do what I say I'm gonna do and I will pass this on. Will you give me a chance, just one day? Will you give me one chance to prove myself? Now, how many people say no to a 13-year-old who genuinely does that? Almost zero. When someone writes and they sincerely say, I want to become you, you're my hero because, and they know all about you, and I'll show up early and work late and do whatever you ask me, who's not going to say yes to that? If, it's, if the person's serious about it, that's the kind of email you wait to, to hear. I remember one story, we had this one young person, she was 14 at the time, so she'd had a couple of apprenticeships, and she wanted to be a lawyer. So she went and pitched this law firm, and the lady you know, emailed us, we normally don't get involved, but she emailed us and said, look, I, you know, we're a law firm. We're not about to, to, to give her any kind of apprenticeship, and we certainly wouldn't pay her, and we're not, you know, but, but it's the most amazing letter I've ever seen. She's incredible. She's already taken a law course from UPenn online, and she's read all these books about the law, and she's read Bastiat, and she, so I'm at least gonna meet her, but I just wanted you to know, because we're worried about the legal side of whether we can even meet her. We said, okay, well, her parents have already signed off as part of our process, you can meet her. The lady calls us and said, okay, I'm gonna give her an apprenticeship. I know I said I wouldn't, and I know she's only 14, but I, got it, but I can't pay her. I said, look, that's up to you. We don't get involved in that. Okay. After about her first week, you know, okay, I just wanted to email and let you know we are gonna start paying her, but she will never get a job offer here. Well, six weeks later, at the end of the apprenticeship, she had a job offer at 14 to work for the law firm. She'd been to see clients, she'd been to court, and she was exceptional. She was incredible. And since she's gone on to college and gotten all these scholarships, we didn't make her, she made herself. Decided the law wasn't her thing right after this apprenticeship. But that story of going out and doing something I think I care about goes on 100 times a year at Acton. I was with one of our young people, this was about six months ago, and I said, hey, uh, Derek, uh, what have you been doing lately? Because I, I just tracked up a conversation walking across the campus. He goes, well, I got an apprenticeship. And I said, cool, who are you working for? And he said, Carl Rove. President George W. Bush's political strategist. And I said, you're working for Carl Rove? And he goes, yeah. And he said, well, did your parents know Carl Rove? And he goes, no, no, I just wrote him the email we're supposed to, and I pitched him. I'm helping him write his new book, and it's called, like, The Seven Most Important Decisions a President's Made. He goes, so I'm helping him research it. And I said, so because you like politics and writing, you convinced Carl Rove to hire you. He goes, yeah. I mean, just to him, that was just like, he didn't even, you know, it's like, do you know who Carl Rove is? I was wondering, when do they do all these apprenticeships given the school day? Well, so it's interesting. So our campus doesn't take attendance. And, you know, you, you, as long as you're doing your badges and your parents say it's okay, you can come and go a lot, particularly in high school. You, you can be off doing something most of the time if you want to. But we never know about it until the badge is submitted. And by the way, they, these employers hold them to the contract. You do have to show, you know, if you, if you show up late or you don't, we hear about it. And there's a whole rating system that the young person knows it's going to be publicly rated at the end and everyone's going to see whether they held it because that reflects on acting. By the time they're out of high school, which we call Launchpad, you know, they've probably had seven apprenticeships with reference letters. 
So you think a college looks at those? There's your proof of what I can do. And my goodness, where is there an Acton Academy nearby is what you're thinking, right? And again, we are not slamming public school teachers, public schools. I think what Jeff said, I think many public school teachers are nodding in agreement with. More flexibility, more power and control over their classrooms. Look, my dad was a school teacher his whole life and a superintendent of schools in a public school. And he was talking about this then, and he was begging and urging for new ways to think about how to think about educating kids. Because again, it was Jeff is dead right. The industrial model had its place, and it had its time. We were training masses, armies of, of factory workers. And it made sense the way we did things, but the way we're doing things now, still doing them mostly the same, makes no sense. And my goodness, six, seven internships, some kids working their way into law firms and getting paid at the age of 14 to do work. You can't make this stuff up, folks. And it's what happens when you don't infantilize children and treat them as young agents of change for their own lives and their own growth. When we come back, we continue with Jeff Sandifer, the co-founder of Acton Academy, along with his bride, Laura. continue with our American stories and we return to Jeff Sandifer and the final portion of this remarkable story on his school, the Acton Academy. Education has a very bad habit of talking about price and cost as if they were the same thing, which they are if you never make any money, right? And we're a not-for-profit. That doesn't mean we can't generate surplus. So everything we do in a not-for-profit world, we hope generates surplus doesn't come back to us, we don't take any money out of it, we can reinvest it in something else. So with that distinction, our tuition is still ten dollars or $11,000 a year. And Laura keeps saying, well, our costs are down below $4,000. Why don't we just charge everyone $4,000? Now, of course, if our parents are listening to this, they're going, that'd be great. I'm like, look, I paid $30,000 for our daughter to go to an inferior school, so everyone's getting a bargain. I wish we'd start out pricing it at twenty. dollars We can always offer people scholarships, but why wouldn't I price what the market will bear? So, Acton Academies range in price. Oh yeah, there's more than one of these Acton Academies out there, as you're soon to hear about. From about $3,000 a year in tuition, to last I checked, about $30,000. Our pro forma cost now, and we can get to easily $4,000. Uh, we're pretty sure with a really nice campus, we can get down to $2,500 a year. If you factor in the apprenticeship income that middle schoolers and high schoolers can earn, and you assume that's an offset to tuition, we don't take that money, but a family could use that, we can get the cost pretty close to zero. Pretty close to zero. For some context on this, elite private schools cost between twenty dollars to $50,000 per year. D.C. public schools spend $28,000 per child. And the nationwide average for public schools is almost $12,000. Remember, this started out with seven young people. We weren't even, we wouldn't even have dreamed we really would have a full elementary studio. 
much less in middle school and a high school. The idea that there would be another acting academy would have never occurred to us and was a pure accident. Talked about getting lucky. So this is, you know, you're trying experiments and good things are happening. Then we had two, then we had three, and then we said, you know, maybe if we had 10, we're learning so much more from the other actins. They're already ahead of us, and so we're, we're practicing positive deviance. We're observing the things that work and sharing them and adopting them. Maybe we should have 10. And then we started to try to go from three to six or eight, all suddenly things exploded. Uh, now we're, it's hard for me to even keep count because it changes quickly, where it's something around 150, all sharing ideas every single day. And there's an owner's forum where, as we've been sitting here, I've probably gotten three ideas from around the world that someone's tried, and we all adapt them. It's amazing how much acting academies look like each other, but if you come back six months later, how different they are, because everyone's adopting new best practices on the fly. So the model's always changing. And this isn't the only feedback loop. There are feedback loops everywhere, but probably the most important one for us is we make a series of promises to our parents. Every Acton Academy makes the same promises. Your child will be on a hero's journey, very simple but fundamental belief system promises. And then we ask every parent and every child every week, how are we doing? What's our net promoter score? Would you recommend this place to a trusted friend? One to 10 scale. And we live or die based on those ratings and all the ratings and all the comments are anonymous, but published. And you know, just like the internet, you get some cranky people. You get some people who are probably poorly selected customers and eventually you know, will select out of the system. So it's painful when 90% of your customers are happy and 10% aren't, but we have very clear feedback and it's shared in the community and every acting academy in the world lives by that same standard. You, know, you talk about accreditation, which is a whole, you know, another topic of how nonsensical it is. Well, we have the best accreditation in the world. We publicly publish our customer satisfaction ratings and you can go look them up and you can actually see what the customers are saying. That's our ultimate quality control. I asked Jeff, does any other school in the world do this to have 100% of your customers rating you and posting it for everyone to see? I've never heard of this before. I don't know. Um, I will say that we've had several hundred people come and ask us for tours, school officials and educators. Uh, we absolutely, you know, want to serve people, but remember we only have a couple adults on campus and they're, you know, they're, for safety and everything else, they're busy. And so we don't have a big staff to tour people around, so we, we can't do that. What I do say every time I'm asked is, we would love to have you and your faculty come. Be delighted. However, nothing we do will work without this feedback loop. So anything we can share with you won't work. As soon as you have surveyed your community, for six months, every week, and publish the results of their satisfaction, we will give you every single thing we have. All of it. We'll copy the database and hand it to you. Got to do it first. How many tours have we given? Zero. Zero. So, I don't know if anyone else is doing it. I can tell you it's a very humane way that we don't give a lot of tours. And so, the reason we can expand so fast is, if you become an acting owner, you put your own children in the school and you agree to make promises and be held accountable, what are the odds you're going to build a really bad school? Not much. 
Juan Bonifaci, my wonderful former student who runs Acton Academy Guatemala, said, we just did this terrific quest. And I said, yeah, you know, our quests are often 100 pages long. They're so hard for us to write. And he set up these games. He goes, oh, no, ours took like five minutes. Said, five minutes? Uh, he goes, yeah. We put, uh, we took duct tape and we put a little three foot by three foot box on the floor. We duct taped out a box on the floor like we could stand in. And we said, in six weeks, you will be standing in this square for no more than 10 minutes and no less than eight. You will pick a hero. You will deliver a speech in your hero's voice that you write yourself. So let's imagine Churchill, 1941, standing on a specific street corner in London. And you're going to get now, if you speak less than eight minutes, you're just going to stand there. If you speak more than 10 minutes, the hook's coming out at 10 minutes. So you've got eight to 10 minutes. Good luck. That's all, this is middle school. That's all the instruction they gave them. So, you know, the, the, the six weeks came. There's no help, but the, can you learn how to give a speech when you look at stuff on the internet? Sure, there's, some, there's, a, there's a website called Six Minutes to Speaking or something. So they brought back all these great resources for how to learn to give a speech. They worked hard and videoed their speeches and learned, and they gave these amazing speeches to a room full of 100 people. Now, the flip side of that, we had one young man that came in. He was new to the high school. He wore a hoodie. He looked like, you know, he might be one of those people you would be worried about at your school for violence. He wasn't that way, but it looked like that. He signed up for this. He stood up in front of the room and he froze. And he had to stand there for eight minutes without saying anything. And you just think about how long eight minutes is. We couldn't rescue him. We had to let it happen. He was so brave that he asked for a chance to do it again to a smaller group a week later. So people came to see it the second time. He froze the second time. He's now got this great job in high tech. He's graduated from acting. But he told me about a year ago that the most important decision he ever made in his life was after that second time. He said, I'm either going to leave here or I'm going to give that speech. And he went back and worked on it, and he came back a third time. And he got up, and he wasn't, you know, terrific, but he stood there for eight minutes and he gave his talk. And he said, that moment changed my life. That's the moment I look back to that changed my life forever. And I'll end on this because I think Sager's story and that simple having to actually do something for real that's a skill that's going to matter in your life Reminds me of the last time we had a new orientation meeting for new owners last month. And we normally have parents, but one parent was a parent educator who had been in education for years and wanted to build an acting for his family. I said, what have you learned from being here? Because you wanted to come and see if it was for real and if you could do it. And he said, it's been one of the most sobering experiences of my life. It's as if all my life I had studied tigers in a zoo and I thought I knew tigers. And now I've seen a tiger in the wild and I've seen how magnificent the creatures are and I realize that I know nothing. So what we're all about is having the tigers in the wild in the kind of civil society that they should be living in as human beings. And when you do that, it is absolutely extraordinary what young people do. They are capable of far more than you have ever imagined. They dumb themselves down for adults they submit to arbitrary authority of force to, but then they are living like tigers in a cage. And 
tigers were not meant to be raised in cages. And what a story. And again, that's Jeff Sandifer, the co-founder of Acton Academy, along with his bride, Laura. And you can learn more at actonacademy.org. And he's not trying to, like, grow more schools. He doesn't have a growth plan. They're just growing because you were listening to a man with deep convictions about how kids can be educated in the 21st century and how families can be agents for change on the education front. And that's what's happening all over this country. I mean, it was remarkable to hear him talk about how they could get the costs down to under 4000 and down to even 2500 And then if the young person is interning, bring the cost of education to zero while teaching young people how to be young adults of character and substance, going and knocking on a door and asking for an internship. Really remarkable. And I loved hearing the story about that young man who had to just perform that speech for eight minutes and him saying that the most important decision he ever made in his life was coming back that third time and giving his speech. And my goodness, tigers are not meant to be raised in cages. Jeff is right. Jeff Sandifer's story, his bride's story, Laura, here on Our American Stories.